Hello. How are you? I'm okay. I have a minor technical difficulty. Okay. But I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Uh, I hope you solve the technical difficulty. No problem. It's uh, it's a very minor one. Uh, I cannot connect my earpods uh... to my phone. So it may be a little bit noisy, but I'm going to go to somewhere quiet. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's the usual, the usual technical difficulty. Connecting oh, yeah. stuff. <laughs> Hold this button to connect. No. Anyway, I, I, I mean, what was wrong with cables? It was so convenient. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, all of this technology. So, um, welcome everyone to our weekly Twitter Space, and uh, today we're going to talk about a lot of important things regarding censorship resistance, privacy, and what was happening uh, during this week. We will also share some news and updates about Beam. Uh, we were supposed to have a special guest with us tonight. Unfortunately, uh, he fell a little bit under the weather and could not join, uh, which is not surprising because things we're going to talk about would make like everyone sick to their stomach. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but uh, we, we hope we will uh, try to bring him on uh, next time and uh, get his opinion. But in the meantime, what we're going to talk about today is basically like three kind of main, major topics. Um, first of which is the upcoming Ethereum merge and uh, what it means for censorship resistance of the Ethereum network. There was a lot of interesting news and uh, debates happening this week. And uh, then we're going to also talk about what's happening with the uh, ZK, let's say, technology and how it is applied today on Ethereum. Uh, and finally, we're going to talk about BIM. There were several questions from the community about uh, you know, how BIM is prepared to handle all of the situations that kind of happened uh, recently, and uh, we will also share some interesting updates and news. So let's get started. Yeah? Okay. So um, let's start with the, with the upcoming Ethereum merge. So as you know, last week we talked about um, what happened with the tornado cache and um, uh, in fact that it was kind of added to the sanctions list and it was the first time that the contract the smart contract address was added to this list and not an organization or an individual and of course this in it of itself kind of created several interesting new questions um, but we also saw the kind of response from the community and from the other organizations, uh, GitHub immediately deleted the code and blocked the accounts of developers and the project itself. Uh, Infura and uh, Alchemy and the other centralized RPC providers for Ethereum started blocking these addresses. And uh, a lot of major protocols such as Uniswap and the several others also uh, blocked the access to these addresses. So the response was very, very quick. Uh, like it all happened in the span of a few days. And one of the things that immediately kind of started being discussed is what it will mean for the post-merge Ethereum, which will be proof of stake. And several people actually raised some very valid points. The most kind of, I would say, uh, central of which is the fact that in this kind of post-merge ecosystem, at least in the current state, about 67%, which is, as we know, the majority that is required to take over the proof-of-stake network, uh, is actually controlled by about 11 relatively large organizations, so-called staking pools. And uh, most of these pools are uh, regulated, belong to regulated organizations, and uh, uh, fall under United States jurisdiction. And immediately the question was, what will happen with these organizations in the context of uh, this uh, OFAC list that prohibits ad access to certain addresses? Are they going to censor it or like what's going to happen? And um, 
one of the things that was like really uh, important in this debate is the fact that the whole process of how Ethereum proof of stake is going to work, who is going to build the blocks and how the voting on these blocks, like in terms of the validators is going to work. Uh, it's supposed to follow this kind of schema that there is a separation between whoever builds the block and whoever proposes it, that the validator which gets the slot, the next slot, and it's called the proposer. And in an ideal world, uh, the current kind of, uh, uh, let's say, architecture that was proposed and described um, is that the validators are supposed to vote only on block header. So you have a block producer, a builder, building the block, and then only sending the header to some kind of a marketplace, which in this case, uh, like for example, is MEV Boost. And the MEV Boost automatically selects the most profitable header for uh, the, the block proposer to, to propose, to, to sign on. And uh, it's all very good and fine. However, if this validator is a regulated entity, I'm not sure it can actually sign on a block for which the entire transaction set is not known. Right, it would be very strange. And what it means in practice is that all of these bodies, like especially large organizations, will kind of have to be their own block builders. And then they will build the blocks and they will also sign the blocks while they know which transactions are included so that they, they don't uh, uh, you know, break the law or kind of interfere with these regulations. And it could have been avoided technically, or at least kind of made different, if this process of separation between the like the builder of the block and the proposer would have been implemented in the uh, Ethereum kind of mechanism, but it wasn't. And until now, this entire kind of story of the fork was very, um, you know, strange. There was a lot of delays. It's been going on for several years, but now it's few weeks away, it suddenly became a reality. And people started to trying to understand, okay, after all this time, what was actually built and how it's supposed to work. And in the light of these new kind of behaviors that you can now add the smart contract to the sanctions list, suddenly, uh, all of these questions pop up, like in, in an instant, and a lot of discussions were had on Twitter, and probably in a lot of other places. So the official Ethereum community or not official, but the Ethereum community, uh, is currently saying several things. First of all, uh, all of these validator pools uh, said that they're not going to censor transactions uh, and uh, you know they promise not to do that or something of, of the sort, uh, which is very nice, but obviously it's not something that can be completely trusted in my opinion. Uh, a lot of people started proposing all kinds of solutions, but the reality remains that we are currently in a very strange situation because you cannot really run an Ethereum node. Uh, I'm not sure it will be a lot simpler to do post-merge, but definitely not possible today. All of the major players in this staking pools ecosystem are regulated entities. All of the access to these uh, smart contracts that are running on the network are done either through centralized fronts that can be censored or through uh, RPC providers such as Infura or uh, Alchemy, which are also centralized. And it's kind of like this very weird situation where this network is like decentralized in, in theory, but the access to it from all sides is basically centralized, right? Yeah. And this has been like one of the very eye-opening aspects recently is how quick to, to kind of jump on the censorship train many of these companies have been. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was very, very fast. There was no discussion. There was no kind of, uh, uh, you know, DAOs voting on stuff. It's just bang, bang, bang. And, uh, you know, the access is gone. Yeah. Uh, now, previously, there were some, uh, obviously, limitations. There were some addresses that were blocked. But first of all, all of these addresses belong to either individuals or organizations, basically custodial addresses that, you know, had control of these funds. Uh, never before was it applied to a smart contract, uh, you know, which is kind of locked and self self managed. And also, um, it was kind of always 
at least in, in, in the public's mind, in the PR uh, kind of uh, aspect, it was always like, oh, it's just a front end. It's just a front end that it's limited. It's just a front end. You can always access, you know, the smart contact in other ways, even though it's not like really a simple thing to do, but at least theoretically it's a possibility. Now, today we're talking about something much more uh, like complicated and much more important. And it's the fact that not only will you not be able to access it, uh, like, you know, through the front ends or official front ends, or even through official RPC providers, and just to remind you, MetaMask is using, I think, Infura uh, to, to even, you know, access this information. So you can censor the transactions there. But the very layer of consensus of the network will be kind of, you know, uh, always checking against those sanction lists and will, uh, you know, basically uh, just discard all the transactions that uh, are trying to, to break, you know, go through to these addresses that were blocked. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very strange situation, and um, so yeah, it, it's kind of happening very quickly. Um, even though it should have been probably like I, I would imagine it should have been discussed much earlier in the like design or uh, decision making stage of this transition, uh, but now everybody has this strange feeling. Uh, at least I have this feeling that you know the train is rolling, right? We, we're getting closer to the date of the merge, and. Uh, most of uh, centralized organizations uh, like uh, USDC, Circle, and uh, like oh, several others, uh, the, the you know Chainlink oracles, they said they're going to support this fork and they're only going to be working on the new uh, proof of stake Ethereum. But mm. it kind of gets this feeling that this censorship element was uh, kind of left behind and not completely discussed or uh, at least uh, uh, you know properly considered. Uh, and uh, it, it makes a lot of people, uh, including myself, uh, uneasy because, you know, it's happening and uh, it's not clear how this, uh, this property of the network is going to work. Absolutely. And we, we kind of speed ran from like theory into like practical application of, of what's going to happen and, and how we're going to handle it. And many people... Uh, I have kind of two thoughts about this. Many people kind of fold it over and are like censoring stuff before they even need to think about it, in my opinion. But I was speaking with a friend that's been heavily involved in Ethereum since early 2015 or something. And he was saying it kind of makes sense. It's, it's not surprising that regulators have come down hard on uh, Tornado Cash. And also that these other protocols are not like kind of mortars or ad, uh, advocates for such a thing. They're more just building a protocol and, and opening it to users and this kind of stuff. Uh, and I kind of, I, I kind of agreed with his point when he said that, like it, it makes sense to, at least in my opinion, it makes sense to keep yourself safe and, and this kind of thing uh, and out of trouble. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And obviously... this is exactly like this chilling, chilling effect, right? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of like, for example, in some cases, uh, protocols censor uh, things that they were not even kind of maybe directly required to, uh, but just to be safe, you know, uh, we, we don't yeah. want any trouble. Yeah. And yeah. this is exactly the point because uh, so we, we have... Um, like we saw that recently some of the Aztec transactions uh, or at least people who used Aztec were uh, requ requested by, I think it was uh, FTX that requested kind of additional clarification regarding those transactions. Yeah. A and like I I'm, um, like I think that what's going to happen is that uh, they will try to stay away from anything private just to be on the safe side. Mm. Yeah. And and this is a huge shame as well. Like, uh, and and it's always kind of been a talking point in crypto. Like, if you if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't need privacy. Uh, especially with like the two biggest coins, Bitcoin and Ethereum, being fully transparent in terms of like data on chain and 
and transactions and addresses and this kind of stuff. But this is a very like dangerous kind of avenue to travel down that privacy is only for criminals and privacy is only for people doing stuff that's not okay by uh, whatever entity that says what is okay or not. It's a very kind of, it's a very dangerous and slippery slide in my opinion. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And also, um, now, like, it, it's, it's not just about privacy. It's like privacy is like one thing, but even if you kind of are transparent, still you have now this, um, I don't know what to call it, kind of, you know, implicit permission to start mm. thinking about like, wait a second, do we like this? What about this smart contract? Do we like it? Do we like yeah. it? What, what yeah. does it do? Can you do something bad with it? Oh, you might. Okay, let's let's block it, right? Let's sanction. Yeah, and then bad becomes very like, uh, I mean, bad is always very like uh, subjective and and then it becomes a thing of like, is making a profit bad? Is doing this bad? Is donating to this cause bad? Is receiving money from this individual bad? Uh, it's, yes. it's a very, it's a very strange, uh, it, it, for me at least, it's a very strange concept that I think should not really fit into the crypto model. Uh, and yet this is what we're seeing now. Yeah, absolutely. And I really don't like the fact that the Ethereum community, at least like the, let's say more kind of official part of it or like more, uh, not, you know, the critics, but rather the proponents of it uh, are not doing a good enough job of addressing these issues, in my opinion, seriously enough. Uh, because I, I have read a lot of kind of points on both like pro and against, and I have to uh, admit that Right now, the critics of this specific point are making much more kind of serious effort and like bringing, like in my opinion, uh, better arguments uh, than people who are defending the merge like as it is, right, without any uh, changes. Um, Absolutely, many of many of the like Ethereum supporters are almost just saying like it's okay, and that's their argument. Is is that it's going to be okay and and blah 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 blah. Yeah, it's going to without, be fine. Yeah, without addressing kind of the issues that that are very very like pertinent with the merge coming up. I, I totally agree. I mean, w <laughs> in any other situations, uh, like uh, Coinbase or whomever saying, "Oh, we promise not to censor transactions," you know, it would have been laughed at, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But suddenly it becomes kind of a valid point. Oh, they promised. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Already two, two, two major stake pools already promised. Okay, what about the rest? No, not what about the rest. What about these ones? <laughs> but this, this brings me to like a, a question that I have or, or rather a, maybe a talking point that's kind of more relevant to the difference between proof of stake and proof of work. Uh, and, and I kind of go back to one of the instances, I think it was last year, and a US-based mining pool that set up, they were censoring transactions on their pool to be OFAC or, or other kind of parameters compliant, uh, and it didn't last very long. Like, they kind of gave up, and, and because, at least this is my, my thinking, because giving up on certain blocks made it less profitable for them as a mining pool. They had to kind of give, give up on the OFAC compliance. Uh, and I, I guess the question or talking point here is what's the like biggest difference between proof of work and proof of stake that kind of creates this more uh, kind of corruptible censorship enabled uh, environment that isn't so present in proof of work. And also, I guess the, the follow-up point or the follow-up question is how or, or which aspects of what's happening now with regards to the merge are relevant to sort of Bitcoin and, and proof of work networks in the future? Yeah, so um, it's a great question and it's really, uh, important um, kind of uh, 
important thing to discuss because there are several differences and um, uh, you know some of these differences are uh, in the implementation like, let me give you an example when you are a proof of work miner you usually own the equipment that you're mining on uh, if there are assets or GPUs and for you to switch to another pool when you are the owner of these assets or, or uh, GPUs or, or whatever you're using to mine is basically just kind of changing one line in your script, right? You connect to a different pool. And obviously you're going to connect to a pool which gives you the most profitability and it's obviously going to be a pool which censors as little transactions as possible for, for many reasons, like starting from transaction fees and general block fees. Now, uh, even like, like today, I think even the basic analysis shows that a lot of transactions uh, in, in the block like can be somehow related to these you know sanctioned addresses. Um, so it, it may result in omitting quite a large amount of blocks, which definitely affects your profitability. However, in the staking pool situation, and once again, I'm quoting here a little bit from that video that we shared, I think last week, maybe we should share it this week again. If it's not implemented correctly, you have a lot more stickiness. If you are uh, actually staking your funds in a non-custodial, like in custodial fashion, right? You're actually like sending your funds to somebody else to stake, and you are not in direct control of these funds. There are several uh, problems with that. First of all, changing to another staking pool is not as an easy process and might take much longer. Might be. Uh, related to kind of some loss uh, in terms of like the fees that you're paying or like the process of getting your funds out of one staking pool and putting in the next one. And this friction is important because it makes kind of this switch process more difficult, right? Uh, also, if you know that like all of the top staking pools are actually sensory transactions, then you're... Uh, economic incentive is not as large because it's not like you're choosing between somebody who is censoring and somebody who is not. So it becomes kind of much more closer in terms of like, why would you switch if everybody's doing that? Yeah. Uh, and it, like, it's, it's an important kind of um, difference in terms of like who is, who owns the, the, the power, right? Uh, obviously it also gives more freedom to the staking pools, pools themselves, especially if the 60 something percent of the staking power is controlled by I don't know, four, five, six, seven large organizations, uh, it makes this completely a different game. And it's different between like when you have like three or four mining pools, because once again, switching a pool is easy. And each pool knows that the moment they're doing something wrong, people will just switch to another pool and they will just disappear, which is not so with the staking pools in the proof of stake. So yeah. this is kind of the, the first and you know, you could have implemented it in a way that you are non-custodial, that each of the uh, like each every one of the stakers has complete and total control of their funds and switching between pools is easy uh, but that's not not how it is today yeah and there was I, i'm not sure if, if it was mentioned already but there was kind of the idea of like the block signers signing the block without having knowledge of exactly what transactions are in the block only knowing that they kind of conform to the like consensus rules. Uh, yeah. And this, this would pretty much kind of, how to say, like uh, make the, at least for now, make the kind of block my, the, the people publishing the blocks and this kind of thing uh, void of any responsibility as they don't know if there's a sanctioned kind of transaction or if there's anything uh, that would be pulled up in the block, uh, but this isn't the case, and and they already before signing a block, they can kind of see and and evaluate what transactions are in the block. Is this right? Yeah. So that was supposed to be uh, the the mechanism that would ensure that there is a separation between whoever is actually building the block and whoever is signing it, right? Yeah. Uh, but since this mechanism was not implemented on the protocol level so far, from what I understand, it basically means that there is no, uh, there isn't anything that would kind of uh, prohibit the same entity from building and signing their own blocks. Yeah, 
exactly. and this is what they will probably do if they want to be compliant. Now, another point about the proof of stake is that in proof of work, if you are, uh, you know, doing something, whether it's censoring or whether it's kind of MEV or whatever, there is still this probabilistic aspect. Even if you are one of like few large pools, you still have a probability, uh, even though it might be a relatively large one, of closing the next block. But in proof of stake, the validator for the next slot is known beforehand. Mm. Yeah. And this means that uh, there is kind of a certainty of who is going to sign the next block and then or the next slot, and then it's kind of obvious um, like who, who, what you're going to do, right? In both in terms of MEV and both in terms of the censorship. And uh, it, it slightly changes this, um, uh, you know, this relation of power between kind of how pools, mining pools operate and how staking pools operate, right? So, so there, there is no, there is no kind of open question here. Yeah, you know who is going to close the next, uh, uh, next block and that's about it. Yeah, exactly. And this somewhat or substantially increases like the responsibility on the block signer as well. Yeah, by the way, uh, one of the arguments that was widely discussed on Twitter about this is that uh, if somebody is going to censor transactions, we will slash them, we will punish them, and we will slash them. Uh, and looks like social slashing, like social consensus, this is what's supposed to fight this censorship problem. But there are kind of two problems with that. Uh, first of all, there is no such mechanism today. Like you're only slashed for uh, missing your slots or signing double blocks. Like if you're signing two different blocks or if you're completely kind of missing your slot, that's when you're actually slashed. And the second yeah. problem is that uh, it's very difficult for the minority, like in this case, if you are like under the 30 something percent to really influence the game because uh, it's difficult to make decisions. For example, let's say we start rolling like it is, and this is, by the way, one of the my like most important concerns here. And then we say something like, uh, "We will add this PBS mechanism later, right?" Yeah. But how exactly is it going to work? Like, how how are you going to force this on a majority of regulated validators, right? Every fork that you're going to kind of try to make to propose this new mechanism. Uh, is kind of doomed if you don't control the majority of the voting power. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, for for like, uh, at least how I understand like uh, regulators and like governments and, and their power and how they wield it and this kind of stuff, I mean, it wouldn't be beyond them to kind of clamp down on anyone signaling like for such a protocol or such a protocol upgrade to go through. Uh, I mean, like, if you signaled or said yes to such an upgrade, then you could be kind of liable for... Uh... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they would say something like, listen, like, we're making a ton of money here as it is. It's all good. Like, why do we even need to add all these kind of censorship-resistant properties? Like, it, it works just as well for us. Now, uh, just like in the... Proof of work mining, like you have to, when you're doing any kind of meaningful uh, upgrade, you need to convince the miners uh, that it's good for them. It means that the network gets better, you will get more traction, more transactions, and hence more fees for the miners. And this is the reason why miners support the fork, right? In general, this is the process, or at least this is how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, uh, it's a little bit different because the network is already very popular, the profits are huge. And um, like, why rock the boat? Like, what do we have to gain from giving more, you know, freedom, less censorship, or more privacy to, to our users? Like, what? That's that's exactly the problem here, right? Yeah, it would almost like uh, dilute or diffuse the profits that were already there into more hands or more validators and this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, so, so another topic that, uh, in my opinion, is very important and interesting is what will happen with the ZK technologies, right? So uh, Aztec is obviously a ZK-based uh, privacy uh, protocol, but we have a lot of interesting and upcoming and existing protocols that use, for example, ZK rollups, uh, 
and we have a lot of uh, like several different like uh, protocols and companies that develop zk evm which is the next generation of kind of generic zk rollups and both of these solutions are very important for the scalability of ethereum on layer 2 uh, and we saw a lot of progress in this area uh, like recently yeah and it's great but at the same time zk uh, also provides like some additional privacy and in some cases it was kind of described as oh like you see we don't need dedicated privacy solutions on ethereum because zk roles will take care of that too now this is like exactly the problem because now what's going to happen is that somebody is building these proofs right somebody some centralized entity is building this proof and at the same time this entity is also uh, responsible for including or not including specific transactions into that proof. Now, in general, there is a mechanism that, for example, you take the mempool, and then, for example, if certain transaction is consistently not included in several blocks, you can create a mechanism where you come to the creator of the zero-knowledge proofs and you say, wait a minute, why didn't you include this transaction? Let's punish you. You stake something and we will punish you for that uh, because we need to include all transactions that arrive to the mempool. Uh, however, like in this new kind of climate, it will be very difficult to do so because, once again, it's it's based uh, on the mechanism design. If you design the mechanism in a way that makes it difficult not to include all transactions and makes it difficult and unprofitable to censor transactions, then that's what will happen. Like your incentive model is built in a way to be inclusive, to be uh, you know free and private. Uh, however, if you are building the system that you don't have to do that, and uh, that's what's going to happen. So these entities which are creating these proofs, and by the way, uh, it's, it's a quite a demanding process, so it's not something that anyone will be able to do on their laptop. You need like, machines with a lot of computing power to create those proofs. That's exactly uh, what will happen. They will just, you know, once again, be either compliant or do something like that will exclude certain transactions. And um, I'm not sure how this is going to work. Like if it's not part of the protocol. Yeah, and this this leads me to a question that kind of comes before even this, uh, like before the transactions on the layer two. Uh, if you're, imagine for example, a address on layer one that's sanctioned tries to use like the bridge for layer two uh could that lead to or i, I mean as we've seen like smart contracts can be uh, sanctioned and this kind of stuff so the kind of bridge contract from layer two uh itself to the for example aztec or for example starknet or or something that adds a little bit of privacy to the base layer this mm -hmm. could also be sanctioned and yep. this and this kind of leads me to uh a question that came from the community from joe and he asked and and also mentioning two of the protocols that we've already mentioned uniswap which i think uh kind of blocked 250 or, or something thereabouts addresses from using at least the front end. Uh, I, I don't think they can can uh, block them on the contract side, but and also Aztec. And he said protocols like Aztec and Uniswap are signaling to authorities that they want to be compliant by blocking addresses. Uh, and how are they vulnerable to a state crackdown? And how is Beam in a similar sense? How would Beam also be or also not be vulnerable? Okay, <laughs> so step by step. So first of all, yes, definitely Uniswap. But like I'm saying Uniswap just because it comes to mind first. But uh, a lot of different protocols made steps to you know avoid any of these funds getting into their protocols because uh, it's a nightmare, right? So suddenly you become this kind of I don't know accessory after the fact or whatever it's called and now you need to kind of dig out this money out of your pools and you know do all kinds of stuff so like it's better avoid it uh, and not become the next uh, you know the next address on the list 
Um, but let's talk about like how to do it right. How, 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 what is the right way to do it and what BIM has today uh, that in my opinion is much better and what we're still kind of need to improve. So first of all, the ability to run your own node turns out is crazy essential. Uh, like Bitcoin, when I, when I first kind of downloaded and you know installed the Bitcoin node, ah uh, yeah, it was annoying. I had to download a lot of information. I had to find the machine with the hard drive that could support it. Blah blah blah. But at the end of the day, and it was one day that it took me to do that, I had a, a Bitcoin node that I could run and I could access it using like direct. Are we okay? Hello. I think we're okay. okay. I think I, I apologize. I accidentally muted everyone. everyone. Yeah. Yeah. You exercise your, your, your centralized authority. <laughs> just, just making sure we you understand. See? You see how bad centralization is? I'm, I'm exercising <laughs> my censorship abilities on the trip space. <laughs> exactly. Decentralized Twitter. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the ability to run your own node is essential. Now in Ethereum, it was always a problem. In Beam, helpfully, like luckily, right now it's as simple as basically downloading a desktop wallet. Like you don't even need to download the node kind of directly. You just need to download desktop wallet. There's all of the built-in, fully functional, uh, you know, full node functionality with the graphical interface. So it's very easy and convenient. And it's very important. Uh, this is the first part. When you are running your own node, you already have kind of a, a lot better situation than when you rely on any kind of remote, uh, you know, RPC or whatever uh, services. The second part is the frontends. So in Beam, uh, the desktop wallet runs all of the applications locally. So it means that even if the internet, like, the centralized parts like servers, whatever, go down, like all of your code necessary to running the application is on your machine. And you just need to open your node and the application is opened within the wallet and it connects directly to your node and you don't go through any centralized uh, services. Yeah. So this and is the this, second part, yeah. Like this is, uh, I, I just want to emphasize like how huge a thing this is and, and at the time, I think many people in the community were kind of wondering, like, why is there a focus on, like, the decentralized, decentralized app store? And why, what's the need for kind of being able to distribute apps uh, kind of in, in any manner that you want to? And I think, like, now it's becoming very, very obvious and very, like, uh, almost like a required kind of component of a dApp is this front end also being decentralized and also being easily distributed to, to anyone that wants to use it. Absolutely. Now I think about all of these people uh, who accidentally like were sent, I don't know, by someone, some 0.1 ETH and, and suddenly they cannot access uh, DeFi applications and the potential losses it could cause. Um, you know, it's it's crazy. Like you, you open your tools which you use to trade every day, and you suddenly cannot, you know, cannot access them. Um, we have a question from. Yeah, can you, Brenda? Oh Brenda. yes. Oh, wonderful. Great. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Oh, great. Perfect. Then. Yes. Uh, so uh, I'm Brendan Marr. I'm a MIT Media Laboratory alum. I'm also involved in uh, some of the Wyoming uh, legislation around digital uh, identity and privacy. I want to say, first off, just on the prior conversation, uh, yeah, I certainly agree with your architecture there. Uh, that's certainly a must. It's very, very, very important uh, regarding uh, nodes that are local and, and apps and services that are local. But I wanted to throw out, I think, the elephant in the room, which is really around privacy and smart contracts or any contracts, and I, I've testified about this publicly. One of the great dangers of where we're at is that we will no longer be able to have private contracts, not only between individuals, but also 
uh, with corporations, between corporations, we will be able to be in a, we will be in a position where entities, foreign governments, will be able to mine uh, transactions and figure out and determine beforehand corporate structure before uh, the corporation has a chance to implement it. Uh, their competitors will know about loans. Competitors will know about all sorts of things about strategy. And if you can all speak a little bit to this, I'd love to hear your thoughts on these matters. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for joining. And uh, it's, it's a great question. And we do have an answer. Uh, and it's an answer that we've been uh, kind of answering for many years already. Uh, in, in our case, it's called opt-in auditability. And what it means is that you have this layer of privacy and uh, it's by, private by default. I'm, I'm sorry, can, can you mute, uh, Brenda, oh, sorry, yes. background noise? Sorry, I'm in a public. Ah, it's fine. It's good. Um, so by default, all of the transactions are private in Beam. All of the transactions are completely confidential by default. However, there is an ability for a user or a group of users to disclose the information that is either required by you know somebody they want to comply with, whether it's an authority or a third party auditor, uh, and they decide which information to disclose. However, we do provide the mechanism to be able to prove mathematically that the disclosed information matches the confidential information on the blockchain. We call this feature an opt-in auditability. We do have now uh, implemented like a part of it, which is called transaction proof. So for example, on confidential blockchain, when you send somebody funds, they can say something like, oh, I didn't receive anything. Can you prove you sent me the, the money that you told me that you sent? So we do have this mechanism built into each wallet that allows you to prove that you send the funds to this specified address and it was signed by the receiver. Now, these mechanisms uh, are very versatile and very um, rich in terms of like what you can do with it. You can sign documents during your creation of the transaction. You can exchange information that will be signed by both parties. You can theoretically register the identities of your wallets with uh, some third party without actually affecting your anonymity, but you will be able to provide uh, some of the metadata that you want uh, to a third party in a reliable way. So in my opinion, this is the best direction to uh, go because first of all, it allows organizations to do their business, conduct their business safely. Uh, and by the way, an interesting story, like when, when we go into Web3 uh, scenarios, like for example, uh, like real world Web3 applications, uh, suddenly uh, there are a lot of needs for privacy. Like for example, you are a contractor working for some organization, don't want anyone be able to see your salary, right? So you do need some kind of a privacy, but you do also pay your taxes as re a regular person, you provide audits for the authorities or whatever. So yeah, uh, you, can, uh, you can achieve that. You can achieve confidentiality by default without uh, you know, having to completely uh, you know, avoid any regulation. You can do both. Yeah, that's great. Uh, really wonderful to hear. I think that's that's completely the right architecture. Thanks. Uh, yeah, sure. And uh, uh, like, if you want to learn more about that, you're welcome to contact us, and we will gladly provide a more in-depth, uh, you know, explanation. So. Let's continue with the topic of what's what's beam situation. Um, so we have these uh, two things: the ability to run your own node and local applications. By the way, as Gus said, uh, our app store is not only completely local, but it's also confidential, and it allows you to run uh, applications downloaded from elsewhere. So you can upload the application directly to our contacts through the app store in a completely anonymous way, or you can just create an archive with this application and uh, send it you know, through whatever Telegram or like any other like email, whatever other means that you want, and you will be able to run it locally. So we did invest a lot of effort in really making this decentralized app store, uh, you know, decentralized. Now, the third part is um, how do you connect uh, to, to other nodes? And this is something that I think we should improve on. Uh, right now, we do have some 
uh, bootstrap nodes that we use. Uh, and this is like the first address. You like when you are downloading you node, you always need the first other node to connect to. Uh, right now, this portion in our case is centralized. Uh, like we do provide a set of addresses, but all of them obviously are hosted on some uh, uh, well-known uh, cloud provider. And um, uh, it's something that we uh, should improve on and we will think about how to do so, whether through some decentralized, I don't know, hash table with nodes. But running public nodes is, I think, one of the most important aspects of the community so that you know, as many as many publicly facing nodes we have, that's kind of improves greatly the strengths of the network in terms of being able to find those nodes and connect to them. Uh, you know, Guy Korean was saying that for like years, uh, and uh, I think now is the time to uh, to really kind of move into this direction. Uh, other than that, um, the protocols that connect the nodes are encrypted. Um, the protocols that connect the clients to the nodes are encrypted as well. Uh, we do have Dandelion, but I think it'd still be beneficial to use uh, a more kind of um, uh, robust solution like uh, Tor or even better Neem. Uh, we've been talking about that for a while. We do have some integration options, but maybe you know we should improve on that as well. Um, the, it's not possible in Beam to <laughs> censor uh, users by their addresses because there are no addresses for the users. Uh, there are addresses for uh, the smart contacts. Um, they can be changed. Like smart contact can be just relocated quite easily, but still it's it's possible to censor that, and that depends on the miners. Um, what else did I miss in terms of our strengths and weaknesses? Um, so. Uh, as you know, um, we are now working on like kind of um, incubating another project called Source, and uh, it's basically a decentralized uh, Git repository. Like one of the things that Source did is they hosted their binaries on IPFS and put the uh, links to those binaries into the contract. So Beam will definitely do this as well, which means that instead of as now you are downloading the binaries from the website, which is centralized, or from GitHub, which is centralized and definitely censoring stuff. Uh, so we, we will put it on also on IPFS and provide the smart contact to download those binaries, which means that you will be able uh, to open a local uh, application Right, so you, you basically need to some way to connect to uh, to the contact, get get these addresses, and download it from IPFS, or we can just put static IPFS addresses. That's also a possibility. But getting those binaries should be also, you know, decentralized more than it is right now. This is good. One of the one of the things that you mentioned about beam contracts having addresses and these addresses can be seen and these can be like sanctioned i guess as we've we've seen with tornado cash situation uh but one of the questions i have which i know the answer to but i just want to make this like kind of or or at least emphasize this uh in beam a contract could be sanctioned but would parties that are interacting with the sanctioned contract address, would these be able to be identified and, and thus kind of sanctioned as well or associated with the sanctioned address? No. Yeah. Obviously and, not. <laughs> and I think this is like one of the crucial things. Like you can, like in Tornado's case, they've sanctioned the like mixing addresses for, for the various contracts with uh, Ethereum or, or wrapped Ethereum, USDC and, and these kind of things. But in Beam's case, the contracts, the addresses are there, but anyone kind of interacting with them, uh, yeah. they maintain their privacy and, and have this kind of uh, disconnect between the contract and, and any interactions that they have with it. Yes. So obviously, um, first of all, you know, everything becomes much easier on a completely confidential layer one, uh, as Beam is. Uh, and uh, I sometimes feel like we, we hold this kind of technology and, uh, you know, uh, which makes everything very simple. But on the other hand, uh, not, not necessarily what, uh, uh, you know, some of the organization in the world would want. Um, 
And yeah, you don't know like who is interacting with the contract anyway. And in my opinion, it's very important that this information is not even stored on the blockchain. So no matter when or how, uh, like maybe your address gets compromised, it does not affect anyone who was in, in interaction with you uh, or like, uh, you know, your other transactions, right? So everything is basically completely uh, off-chain. There is no information that could be potentially, you know, retrieved from the past and used against you, uh, which is very important. Absolutely. And this kind of leads to a question that was brought up a few times, once by Joe and, and another couple of people. Uh, and the question itself was, when will uh, Beam when will the beam and ethereum bridge be launched and my kind of follow-up question to this is do you foresee or how do you think like this bridge contract on the ethereum side would work in terms of like the address on ethereum side being public uh and sanctionable for the assets that are coming from the ethereum side being in that contract and and then launching on the beam side of things uh yeah so yeah so first of all in terms of the uh, time frame uh, we're talking about upcoming month or two like it's basically ready from the you know, coding perspective all is needed is testing and deployment and we also have this kind of roadmap that, uh, that for the next couple of months to deploy everything in our pipeline, um, which is quite a lot. Uh, so let's just go over everything quickly because uh, we are coming up on the hour and they did want to make all of this announcement. So it's a great kind of time to do that. So first of all, uh, we have uh, Beam Wallet 7.2, which has asset swaps. You remember the asset swaps that we talked about uh, like quite for a long time ago? And it's an ability to exchange different confidential assets within the wallet. So we are now in the testing phase of this feature, and we would like to invite the community to help us. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a party. We're going to deploy this feature on the DAPnet, which is our testing framework. And we will invite everyone to come for a specific hour. We will have a Twitter space. We will create some asset swaps. And uh, we will also try to uh, make it interesting by incentivizing part of it. We will publish the details in the upcoming days. Uh, and this is the first kind of feature that we want to test. I hope that the 7.2 wallet will be released about the fork height. Uh, it's like the fork wallets are already out there. They're completely compatible. But this specific feature is probably going to take a couple of weeks to test and polish, and then uh, beginning of September will be rolled out. Uh, obviously, we have bridges uh, coming next, and the bridges are uh, definitely going to be problematic in terms of how these addresses on Ethereum are treated. Um, so first of all, uh, yeah, it's possible to block access to any contract on Ethereum, as we now know. Um, I'm not sure how it's going to work, actually. Um, I know there are uh, a lot of bridges to a lot of different places. I don't think all of them are traceable. Like, for, for example, even if you bridge to Solana uh, or any other chain, like, yeah, it's theoretically it's a transparent chain, but you still need a much more difficult mechanism to uh, trace these kind of bridged assets, right? You need to understand what happened like on the one side of the bridge and then on the other side and map the wallets between different networks. So I'm not sure uh, how far um, uh, these kind of tracing agencies are in this regard, but we will see. But yeah, it's possible to block this and I don't know, we'll see what, what will happen, I guess. Um, at least we can say that, but, you know, we have an FT marketplace, so uh, we're not just for privacy, also selling fees and, you know, <laughs> and bands and we have all the by the way the bands launch was terrific last week uh very cool um, a lot of people got their domains and some of other people's domains apparently anywho and then we have the decks uh after the bridges and we also have the stable coin somewhere in between because it's not us it depends on our partners when they are going to launch it 
and then we have the DAO voting uh, part two on the distribution of the funds that are accumulating in the DAO. Yeah, so that's the roadmap for the next two months. As you can see, it's pretty intense. And uh, yeah, everything will be out there. The bridges, you know, the decks, it's, it's all coming. Absolutely. And I and I really, like, personally, <clears throat> stepping stepping back from my role in Beam and, and obviously I have to take it with grain of salt, but I think that this will really be like a some kind of Cambrian explosion for Beam in terms of like the uh, stable coin and the asset swaps and also the AMM decks coming into play. Uh, it will be very, very interesting to see like the the ecosystem kind of grow from these few applications into many. Uh, and this actually, before we, before we wrap up, because I know we're, we're almost at the one hour mark and this kind of led to, this leads to a question that comes from Joe again. Uh, and his question is, is Beam ready for independent devs to build on Beam? And if not, when will the tooling be available? Uh, and I, this is like a question that's always kind of coming up in, in our internal calls and in the community and this kind of stuff. Uh, and I think that in the last two newsletters, at least, or, or maybe the two before that, uh, I published a couple of stuff that was shared from the devs. Uh, mm -hmm. And this was in terms of the uh bvm the beam virtual machine contracts and them being able to be written in rust which i think is huge and and kind of opens the doors to many more devs uh apart from like those versed in c++ uh rust devs also being able to to kind of build and, and construct contracts and applications on beam uh, and I want to pass the question on to you now, Alex, to, to kind of hear your thoughts on, on this. Yeah. So, uh, yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, we now have an ability to, like we started adding uh, rep wrappers for, for Rust, so you can now implement uh, our smart contracts in C++ and in Rust. Uh, once again, it's just kind of the examples. So the, there is a huge difference between, you know, some examples that you have here and there and the proper documentation. Uh, and the answer to your question is, yes, it's possible and very kind of, you know, it's very possible to uh, bring developers. However, it's not as simple as writing a Solidity contract uh, for now. Uh, first of all, we do, uh, we are working on integrating EVM into BIM. And this is kind of the next major milestone for BIM. You know, after we complete the DeFi ecosystem that we have promised and delivered, the next kind of major upgrade that is coming is, is the ability to write, uh, like to, to run EVM contracts on BIM. Um, but even before that, uh, yeah, we definitely need to improve documentation. However, we do provide all of the support. So if you are a developer and you want, or you know a developer who wants to write something on BIM, for now, as we don't have a like amazing documentation yet, uh, we are working on that, but very slowly, obviously. Uh, we will help you in any way we can, including kind of guidance and explanations and examples and whatever. Already today, we have quite a few uh, contracts. Most of them are deployed. Some of them are in kind of these demo stages uh, that you can use as examples. And uh, uh, we have a lot of building blocks available, for example, uh, the BANS contract includes this anonymous vault where you can send funds uh, to the same address, but every time get a different kind of, uh, you know, point in your vault so nobody knows exactly who sent you what, right? This is the key functionality of this uh, BANS project. And uh, uh, just kind of to sum this up, I think, uh, you know, uh, there is a will, there is a way in the terms that, yeah, I, I hope that these events will bring more awareness to the importance of privacy and proper decentralization, not, you know, this uh, decentralization in, in name only. Like if you add the letters DE before whatever you're doing does not make you decentralized. Uh, and I hope that in this light, uh, 
whatever we were doing like in, in beam for the last few years uh will be kind of um you know uh, i would say looked at as kind of a good example of how to really make things decentralized um it actually started back in like an atomic swap feature whoever remembers um and all of the things that we've built through the years up to like the very recent ones, like the centralized app store, we were trying to be as decentralized as possible and support like true decentralization, true censorship resistance and true privacy on the best level possible, like through the industry. I think it will pay off, especially now when there is a need for this kind of uh, technology. Absolutely. And, the, and, and this is like one of the what I consider like the key features of being like for the entirety of, of their existence and especially going into the future. And that's the atomic swaps and, and being able to trade cross chain with other ecosystems, for example, Bitcoin, you can trade being for Bitcoin, via atomic swaps with Litecoin and, and with Ethereum and, and this kind of stuff. And this kind of subjugates the need for centralized exchanges and and the kind of overhead burden from a regulatory standpoint that comes with being a, a centralized kind of exchange. Uh, yeah, I'm sure everyone. I'm sure everyone on the call, in fact, has had like difficulties with centralized exchange uh, for whatever reasons and this kind of stuff. Uh, and the atomic swaps and that beam has kind of get rid of this kind of necessity for the stuff that's required with the with the centralized exchanges and this is almost like under undersold by us and the community and in its significance moving forward i think undersold is our middle name um... <laughs> yeah I, I want to give like one uh, like one more example uh, kind of towards the end. Uh, let's say you are an organization and you want to have like confidential kind of ability to transact and do like all kinds of operations, but you don't like really need this entire maybe the blockchain thing, but you do need some you know this decentralized privacy feature. So, for example, it's very easy on Beam to create uh, new types of confidential assets which are exactly as confidential as Beam itself, which means quite a lot. And then you can use APIs that we have in abundance and well-documented for, for a change. Uh, it's the same APIs that the exchanges and the pools are using, and you can connect the wallets to any script system that you like. Uh, and you have like quite an in interesting and uh, complicated systems that use smart contracts, that use like all of this functionality. Um, and we are exploring uh, several partnerships now that will use Beam like in exactly the same way. So you don't even need to be like your application does not need to be like 100% blockchain app or decentralized. You can have centralized components, but still you can delegate all of your privacy features to to our uh, to our ecosystem. Um, this can be used in I will just give like a few examples like licensing deals. Uh, when you have like some content, you know, that you want to license and do all of these uh, exchanges, uh, you don't necessarily need to use this token as a uh, kind of financial, you know, as, you don't need to replace your money with it, but you can do it uh, in a way that provides like, you know, just like a blockchain, you know, proof of origin, you have like uh, consensus, you have all of these things that are important for the transaction to happen. So yeah, there are a lot of interesting uses. Uh, we are exploring a lot of them. And if you kind of think of something, you hear about things that I think, you know, you, you think Beam can be used for, in addition to all of the things we're doing now, you are always welcome to uh, bring them to the community, discuss them. And, uh, you know, we're very open to additional kind of partnerships and interest. Absolutely. And, and I think that like, already what's coming to fruition with source and and this kind of thing and you've mentioned that there's stable coins indexes that are also looking to launch on beam uh yeah it's a very exciting time for beam in the community uh and lots on the cards and and also not just like exciting in a positive sense because of what's coming uh exciting because of the kind of 
activities surrounding the wider crypto space in terms of like the sanctions going on with Tornado Cash and the Ethereum merge and, and these kind of nuanced kind of activities in the wider crypto space that also, at least in my opinion and, and, and I'm sure the team's opinion, kind of propel being to the front in terms of the solution that's going to be very like uh, very like useful for anyone that's looking to maintain a censorship resistant environment which in my personal opinion is like the crux of what crypto and and what blockchain uh, is essentially there for absolutely i totally agree i think the bitcoin is is uh, is kind of having a <laughs> Uh, you know, a great time now because, like, not just financially, but in terms of like for for a long time, it was considered maybe you know a little bit outdated or doing too few things or whatever. But uh, when it comes to the basics, you know, they have them covered. Uh, yeah. So yeah, like w- l- l- let me kind of summarize it this way. Um, while we're thinking about all of these great, you know, and uh, uh, futuristic features, whatever they are, let's never forget kind of the basics and let's not disconnect from the, you know, things that make all of this work, which is decentralization, don't trust, verify and uh, run your own notes and, you know, don't don't take bullshit from anyone. Yeah, absolutely. It's easy to get caught up and excited and like the, the weird and wonderful things that are happening that kind of uh, in a sense, detract from the real kind of crucial benefits of of what what's trying to be achieved here. Absolutely. So let's wrap it up. Thank you very much, everyone, for being here. Uh, we're always, you know, open for discussions in Twitter, in the community, on Telegram, or wherever. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week in the same time. And absolutely discussions. Next week, same time, and we will publish the topic tomorrow, and it will also be in the weekly newsletter. If you haven't signed up, go and do that now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Awesome. Thank you, Alex, and see you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.